And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Of course, lots of headlines this morning to start off this hump day edition of The Real Investment Show. Uh, yesterday, McCarthy and Schumer and the whole crowd uh, you know, surrounded themselves with uh, President Biden to discuss the debt ceiling limit. Of course, absolutely no resolution made. So everybody leaves and goes back to their corners temporarily. And uh, this leaves about two weeks now for the right and the left to get together to come up with some type of deal before they kind of all break for the summer. So uh, the, the, uh, the availability of time um, is now becoming much shorter. So the pressure is on to get some type of deal done uh, to raise the debt ceiling limit. Again, it'll get done. And as we've talked about before, despite all the media headlines and comments from Janet Yellen that, oh, crisis is just around the corner if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we've been here before. Um, and again, we did it in 2011. We've done this 78 times since 1975. Um, this will get done eventually. And you know, the problem is, is that yes, if we don't raise the debt ceiling in time, then yes, we'll have to shut down the government. We're gonna have to lay off 950,000 non-essential workers who will be furloughed temporarily. Then they'll get all their money back when we do raise the debt ceiling. So basically get a paid vacation, um, <clears throat> even though they're non-essential. Uh, also want we'll to shut down parks and other, you know, kind of non-necessary things. Uh, that we spend money on the government. But yes, mandatory spending will continue to get paid. We'll make our interest payments on our debt, all those type of things. So yes, there's gonna be a bit of wrangling around the debt ceiling, uh, potentially some volatility in markets. We could, uh, the last time that we actually had this kind of debt ceiling debacle was back in 2011. Um, markets did decline temporarily back in 2011 during that crisis. Uh, stocks sold off in uh, September and October while we were going through that, that point. Um, but after that, uh, stocks immediately rebounded to where they were at the beginning of the year uh, over the next couple of months. A very strong recovery as soon as that debt ceiling was eventually resolved through the establishment of a bipartisan commission to come up with a trillion dollars of spending cuts. So um, this will get done. Whatever the negotiation is, that's what it will be. We'll go on with life. Everything is fine. So that is, the, that is the one thing you don't need to worry about right now. The other thing is, of course, is the inflation report today. Now, that's something that's going to potentially move markets this morning at 730. Expectations are right now that uh, the inflation rate is going to come in right about 5%, which is where it was last time. So in other words, inflation is expected not to change this month. But... There are certainly uh, the ability for inflation to come in hotter or cooler than expected, and that's going to be what will move the markets. If, if the markets, if inflation comes in as expected, which is pretty much in line, don't expect a whole lot of movement out of the market today. If it's exceedingly hot, in other words, inflation comes in above 5.5% on an annualized basis, that's a very low probability, by the way. But that would potentially move markets down about one to one and a half percent, as that would certainly put the Fed back on notice that they potentially need to hike rates at the next meeting. If inflation comes in a lot cooler than expected, somewhere between you know below four and a half percent, again a very low probability event, that could actually send markets up about one and a quarter to one and a half percent. 
as the expectation will be is like the Fed will not only not have to hike rates anymore from here on out, but potentially have to start cutting rates because inflation is cooling now too fast, um, which would put in worries about an impending recession. So again, this morning, this inflation number is going to really kind of be the key driver for markets. Volatility continues to remain exceptionally low. We've had absolutely just no volatility in the markets really whatsoever. Even going through and going through these bank crises, you know, back in Mar around March the 15th was the last time that we had a spike in volatility. And that was with the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. But that was basically just a very nascent up, in, you know, tick up in volatility. Uh, you know, again, we normally trade around 20-ish on the VIX um, during kind of bullish trending markets. We're currently trading at about 17. So again, just absolutely no concern right now about, you know, a market downturn or a bigger bear market, et cetera. Just no concern in the markets with that whatsoever. Uh, but that does set the markets up potentially for a pickup in volatility. So again, we could see that today if, if for some reason the CPI number comes in a lot hotter than expected. We could see a pickup in volatility or if some other event occurs, uh, again, when volatility is typically very low. And if we look back kind of longer over a longer term time frame, we can see that whenever volatility gets down to these levels, uh, there tends to be some event that happens, something that occurs that causes a sell off in the markets and a pickup in volatility. Uh, so, again, that's something to continue to kind of think about as we move into summer and we've talked about recently, you know, using kind of where the markets are right now. Uh, we're on a sell signal right now, raise a little bit of cash, kind of rebalance risk for the summer months. You know, things, you know, there's going to be a lot uh, lighter trading vo uh, uh, volume this summer. But also if there's going to be a recessionary drag from all of the um, increases in rate hikes and tightening of policy, um, it's going to start showing up in the next few months. So again, with volatility this low, this certainly suggests that we could see a pickup in volatility, and that would obviously lead to a bit of a sell-off in stocks. Now, again, that doesn't mean a, a major sell-off in the market by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, so far this year, this, this rally really since the October lows has been primarily driven by a very narrow group of stocks. We've talked about this before, you know, the Apple, the Microsoft, the Googles. Uh, those are what have been really driving this market rally since then. Those stocks are pretty overbought here. So again, a bit of a rotation out of those stocks into more defensive names, which would also occur with a bit of a market correction at this point um, and an increase in that volatility would certainly make a bit of sense. Again, with the markets on a sell signal right now at a very high, a fairly high level, not extremely high and markets not you know, really grossly oversold yet. There's certainly the potential here that we could see a bit more correction. That could happen with, you know, uh, again, a CPI report, uh, concerns about a recession cropping up. There's certainly some data today. Uh, the NFIB report, uh, the National Federation of Independent Business uh, report, which represents a large kind of uh, measure of small businesses around the country, which make up about half of our employment economic activity. Very important our small businesses are. That's why you should always support small businesses in your community. They're very important to overall economic activity. That confidence indicator fell to decade lows yesterday. So it's the lowest level that we've had on that indicator um, in the last couple of years, but it is also the lowest level we've seen really going all the way back to 2009. Uh, during that kind of recessionary market that we we're in. So very low level reading there. Uh, all the subcomponents also deteriorated. Sales expectations, expectations for economic growth, 
all getting weaker, uh, expectations for CapEx spending continuing to decline. That all suggests, and historically there's a fairly high correlation between those indicators and economic activity, all suggest weaker economic activity going forward. So again, if we start to see these things kind of crop up, um, uh, suggesting that the economy is weakening more, again, that's one of the things that could lead uh, to a bit of a correction in the markets. Again, nothing, you know, nothing huge here. Markets are still lower than they were back at, at the peak of the market in 2022. We've had a nice recovery here, so a bit of a correction, kind of a reset here uh, would not be surprising at all. Okay, we've got a lot of stuff to get into this morning. Danny Ratliff joining me. Now we're going to talk about the debt ceiling issue, the resolution of that. Uh, Bill Gross, uh, who managed bonds for PIMCO, had some interesting comments. We'll get into that this morning as well. So stay tuned. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, Michael Leibowitz's latest article is out on the website right now this morning. So that's on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back. Daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Retirement's not what it used to be. And knowing how health insurance works after you leave your job is vital. Our next Lunch and Learn will tackle transitioning to Medicare. Thursday, May 11th with Danny Ratliff and Richard Rosso. How will Medicare work with the insurance you already have? What are the deadlines you need to know for signing up for Medicare? Register now for our Transitioning to Medicare Lunch and Learn with Ratliff and Rosso at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. Danny Ratliff joining me. A uh, few things to talk about, of course, uh, as I touched on at the kind of the outset, uh, you know, headlines rife right now with calls from Janet Yellen. In fact, here's just one for you. Yellen warns economic chaos unless Congress raises the debt ceiling in time. Certainly sounds dire, right? The world's going to come to an end, etc. And this is always the tools used to try to put pressure on politicians, right? If I can scare you, then maybe you'll call your politician and have them, you know, take action on this debt ceiling. And what are we talking about here, right? What What is it that we're actually talking about? Um, the debt ceiling, as we've discussed before, is just a statutory limit of debt. It's the credit card limit on your credit card. And so if you want it raised, you've got to go to the bank and say, please raise my debt limit, Right. That way you can charge more. At some point, somebody, you know, one of the adults in the room should say, uh, no, we're not going to raise your debt limit. You really can't afford it. So, but we don't do that, right? And, and so that's all the debt ceiling limit is. It's just a statutory limit of how much debt the Treasury can issue to pay for bills that we have spent beyond the ability of what our revenue can cover. That's all we're talking about. So what's the big hoo-ha? Right. So the big hoo-ha right now is that, you know, we passed this Inflation Reduction Act, which was chock full of just really unbridled spending 
for a whole variety of, of issues addressing social justice and climate change and, and all different kinds of benefit payments, et cetera, that wanted to be sent out by the administration. That's the administration's choice. If they want to spend money on that type of stuff, that's that's fine. And they did pass a bill to do that. So the Inflation Reduction Act is in, is in play. It's about $1.7 trillion of spending. Much of that going to, you know, things that are untested. We're going to spend, you know, billions upon billions of dollars on green energy and climate change and these type of things, which all sound great in nature. But but again, you know, it's a lot of this is unproven technology that it actually does anything of improving the climate. Right. So, in fact, there was an interesting article. Have you ever seen those big giant earth movers? that they use at mining. They're like giant dump trucks. Yeah, they're humongous. They're just phenomenal. They burn like 120,000 gallons of diesel every 24 hours, which will move enough product to build one Tesla. So very so, economical and efficient. Yeah, and plus you're strip mining the planet. That's a whole that's yeah. a, that's a whole other issue. So that, this is my point about this stuff, right? Um, here, here's the point. All the Republicans are saying is like, hey, we want to put some we want to cut some of the spending, right? We want to try to get a little, you know, try to try to reduce this kind of runaway spending we've done over the last few years. That's what the Republican side wants. They'll say, hey, we'll raise the debt limit. We want some spending cuts. The left says we're not going to cut anything, right? You know, we passed the bill. It's ours. You lost. So, you know, this is the standoff right now between the right and the left. And instead of just having conversations saying, hey, we re- need to raise the debt ceiling limit, we can agree to this cut. If you'll agree to this spending over here and you kind of work it out as adults in the room, no, we've got children on both sides throwing a tantrum. The concern, of course, is that if we don't pass the debt ceiling, as we've talked about before, we just wrote an article on this on our website as well. So if you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, just click on last weekend's newsletter. We went through a, a detail about the debt ceiling crisis and how this works. No, we're not going to default on our debt. As we said before, a default is not paying the principal. A technical default is not paying the interest. And if we are for some reason locked up in a debt ceiling fight for some period of time and we don't make our interest payment, we will make our interest payment. Here's the important point about this. And this is a conversation for this morning with Danny. Bill Gross used to manage the bond fund for PIMCO, has come out and said, basically, it's ridiculous. Buy short-term treasury bills. Now. Buy them now. Um, If you take a look at the one-month treasury bill, that interest rate has spiked up sharply over the last five days uh, and and is now above 5% on the one-month treasury bill. So it's had a huge jump over the last few days because of this debt ceiling crisis. That's a 5% yield on a one-month treasury bill. Why would you not want that? (laughs) Oh, I know why. Because you're worried that the government's going to default and not pay your debt. That is not going to happen. As Bill Gross says, you know, buy short-term debt. I would argue that you want to also buy longer-term debt as well with the recent tick up in yields. Because once we do get the debt ceiling done, and again, you may, you may want to wait on buying longer-term treasuries because the, the treasury has, has tapped into a lot of emergency funds to, to continue paying bills right now that, where it can't issue debt. So when this debt ceiling is done, they'll have to issue a bunch of debt all at once. That could cause a temporary tick-up in, 
in yields because of the supply-demand imbalance. Immediately, there's a lot of supply put into markets. So you could see interest rates tick up. That supply will get bought. It will get resolved. And at that point, whatever tick-up rates you have will probably be the peak in rates for the cycle. So again, you may want to start looking at using the debt ceiling to your advantage to actually buy bonds. And again, there is a massive short position as, as our article out yesterday, which is on our website, talking about how both bulls and uh, how the bears are wrong on both stocks and bonds. There is a massive short position on stocks and an even bigger short position against bonds right now. So again, if there's a, a set of buying that comes in, you're going to start getting short covering, which is going to drive yields even lower. So there's, there's a lot of things to factor in here. But the one thing not to worry about is this whole debt ceiling crisis. Danny? Well, I, think, I think this is garnering tons of headline news. I looked last night. That's yeah, great kind for of clicks. Looking around. Yeah. Market Watch, I think the first five articles were strictly on the debt ceiling and all doom and gloom. And so we've talked about putting this into perspective. So since 1960, they've raised it 78 times. But even in more... 40, 49 Republicans, by the way. Correct. 29 Democrats. And so interesting, you go back and you look, say, well, Trump raised it twice. Obama raised it seven times. Bush raised it seven times. Clinton raised it four times. And Reagan raised it 17 times. <laughs> the debt limit was a lot lower back under Reagan, by the way. Wait, wait. Well, even even under Trump, it was much lower. I mean, yeah. it was like $22 billion versus yeah. where we had 30 Well, no, I'm just saying the, 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 the reason Reagan had to raise it so much is the debt ceiling limit was so much lower. It took smaller Correct. increases in debt to yeah. keep triggering that debt limit. So it sounds terrible. It's like, oh, Reagan was just a runaway spender. No, it was just a function of the, the gaps between yeah. you know the debt you're issuing and hitting that limit. It was a lot smaller back then. But I also think it, it shows how the government has used this over time. Now, granted, they have to use this because they can't stop spending money. And, you know, they're going to tell us all these stories about all these things that are, that are going to occur. We're going to default. Um, you know, ratings going to go down the tube. Rates Social are going to go sky not high. Get paid. Yeah, which Everybody's is a big gonna one. Everybody's going to be in the street. Correct. That's yeah, not going to happen. No, because those guys <laughs> want to get paid too. Exactly. But somehow they'll figure out a way for them to them to get paid throughout all this. But I think what we're looking at is using this as an opportunity because usually if we look back historically, you do see rates spike. There's an opportunity here to, to lock in some higher yields, as Bill Gross mentioned. Now, I'm not so sure about the short-term debt, locking something in for a month. You're going to be able to do the same in a money market, ideally, something very, very similar. Uh, but we are seeing, if you look across yields, the short end, Lance, is still it's mm -hmm. creeping up quite a bit. I mean, yep. 25 basis points in the last month, three months trading at 5.23, six month T bills at 5.14. It's not and, terrible. And, and now here, now here, but and, and it's not terrible, right? And so if you don't need your money for three months or six months, but this is money you're going to be using for something. Correct. Right. So you've got uh, let you know uh, what is this? This is May. So got to pay for kids' college tuition in September. Right, August, September, coming up. So you go buy a three month treasury bill. That's fine. So you can pick up now you don't get you're not gonna get five percent for three months. You will get five percent annualized over a three month period. So it's not right. as much as you think it is, but it's better than a sharp stick in the eye. I'm not yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. But here's here's the here's where you have to think about this. Before you just run out and buy a three month or six month treasury bill at five percent, feel good on your, you know, feel good about yourself, pat yourself on the back. It's like, oh yeah, I got I got five percent for six months. What are you going to do after that, right? This is this is the chess game we have to play now because you have to start thinking about moves ahead. If this is longer term money that you're putting away, 
three months or six month bills at 5% sound great, but what are you going to do after they mature? Because very likely that rate is not going to be there in three months, six months, a year, year and a half from now. You may get to, you may get lucky and get to roll it a couple of times at that rate, but at some point yields are going to fall back towards zero. And if you haven't locked in that longer term yield, you're going to lose it. You and you will not have that capability to get that anymore. So it's important to think about the money that you invest. Why am I investing this money in this particular area or this particular instrument? Is it an emotional thing that I'm just doing because it's a big number? I want to get it. But how does that fit into your longer term plan? Right. You may want to be thinking about, hey, this is longer term money that I want to protect for retirement. And at three and a half percent on a 10 year treasury, that's much better than a sharp stick in the eye. And I get that money for 10 years. Plus, when rates fall, I will make capital appreciation on my bonds. So it's important, and this is why Danny and Richard do such a great job with financial planning. It's important to think about these things because this will have a very big impact on your financial planning outcomes down the road. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Lance. And, and you could use this for other reasons as well. You may say, hey, we're going to weather, weather the storm right now. I don't feel like I'm able to take additional risk. Or you feel like things will materialize and you're going to be able to put those funds back to work somewhere else and maybe not in T-bills or uh, you know, any types of bonds for that matter. Yeah, but you have to be cautious here yeah. and understand that if you're rolling this because this is your fixed income part of your portfolio, you're likely going to have some interest rate risk here at some point. Now... On the flip side, if you say, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna do this for a while, get a little bit better yield, lock that in, especially if we think that yields at some point may decline. Great strategy. Yeah. But know what you're using it for. Correct. That's why I said it's a chess game. Yeah. Make sure you plan your, plan your moves ahead. All right. Be right back after the break. Um, we talked a little bit about this on Monday, about Warren Buffett's outlook for the economy. We'll touch on that a little bit more with Danny right after the break. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com So welcome back to the show this morning. Uh, on Monday, I touched a, a little bit on kind of debts, deficits, and this uh, conversation that Buffett had in uh, Omaha over the weekend. Of course, they had their big annual Warren Buffett party, <laughs> which is their shareholder meeting. Um, and so, he, but he made an interesting, actually, him and and Charlie Munger. Uh, both. Uh, Munger, I believe, is 99 now. I think uh, Warren Buffett is 96, if I'm not mistaken, on ages. Two, 92, 92. 92. I don't want to make him older than he is. But Munger, especially since uh, age is creeping up on all of us, nobody wants to get older. Um, but basically making kind of an interesting comment, again, as we kind of talked about, you know, this idea that this boom in economic profitability is probably behind us for a lot of reasons. And 
you know, it's, it's you know, a function, uh, again, of, you know, we've spent so long now. And, and, and his comments really aren't surprising because if you just look at some of the, the statistics of the average American, and we've talked about these before, right? You know, just income, you know, is not enough to sustain the standard of living that we've chosen to live. And this is the important part, right? We all com- there's a lot of articles complaining about you know housing prices and these type of things and and there's certainly a lot of things going on this so, you know institutions are buying houses and that's causing you know problems on, on the rental markets and, and there's certainly things that need to be potentially looked at but part of the problem of the average American is that we've just chosen to live well beyond our means and and I was having this conversation on an interview on Tuesday with public.com and you know, we were talking about the issue of minimum wage and, you know, we have this big demand for higher minimum wages. They, you know, people need this kind of ability to create a standard of living, and which, I, which is all fine and dandy, right? Not, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, that conversation. But you have to remember that at $30,000, you're in the top 1% of income earners worldwide. So is the issue really that... At $30,000 a year, you're very poor and you can't really maintain a standard of living? Or is it that we've chosen to choose a standard of living that's well above what the rest of the world incorporates, right? You know, we, we talk about buying houses, and if the house isn't three bedrooms, three baths with a pool in the backyard, you know, it's, it's a shack. <laughs> and, you know, so we've got to put some things into perspective. And we can look at the economic statistics of how consumers have lived and played and and worked over the course of the last several decades. And, you know, we had a massive ramp up in credit card debt. The average debt to household is at, you know, well over 150 percent of of debt to debt to income levels. And that's just not sustainable. And that becomes problematic. And, of course, in order to sustain the standard of living, we have to keep going further and further into debt. Right. And this is this is this is the problem. Well, that that ability of consumers to keep spending at the rate they've been spending for the last 20, 25, 30 years is now becoming much more challenging. And that is where Warren Buffett is talking about the outlook for his businesses. He has a lot of consumer driven businesses, right? Geico Insurance, Seas Candies, those type of things. Uh, Dairy Queen. You know, these are these are businesses very much driven by the consumer and the ability for the consumer to continue to drive the level of profitability they've seen in the past is the point they're talking about. It's like we may not be able to achieve those types of profitability in the future because of what's happening economically. So I, I thought that was an interesting kind of an interesting point. Well, I think it is. A, you know, we have to remember what debt actually is. We're we're robbing from our future every time we go into debt because we're taking future dollars to buy something now. We had to put those future dollars towards it, right? Because you have to have it. And, you know, I think if we look back, you look at historically over the last even 20 years, we have seen an explosion in debt, not just with the government, right? That's what everybody wants to talk about. But it's households. Household debt has gone through the roof. And I think a lot of this, Lance, has been the advent of new technology, um, how companies look at their businesses. You know, they annuitize a lot of these payments. You can get, basically, you can buy anything you want out there on a payment. Mm-hmm. You need new underwear? Yep. Go get it on a payment plan. I mean, I'm serious. There is so much stuff out there that allows you to go out and, okay, hey, it's going to be $20 every month for the next three months. Um, it's ridiculous. 
it used to be that you know you'd save for something. Saving has been thrown out the window, and that's what the problem here is. Right. And so when you say, you know what, we can go ahead and it's just going to be this much. Oh, I can do that. But the issue is that it adds up because, oh, now I need this. Now I need that. Um, you know, this is a, a substantial problem. And I think Warren Buffett's right. The longer we go like this, and here's the other caveat that's really hurting the consumers, that we've gotten into this, this mindset. We get out of the pandemic and you get the, the YOLO, right? Mm-hmm. You only live once type of mantra going once again where everybody's traveling everybody needs the things that they want uh at my age that's becoming a much more important part of my life what's that oh yeah it is <laughs> yolo <laughs> starting to realize that in game is coming pretty quick <laughs> oh man yeah you're getting there yeah exactly we all are hey but beats the alternative right so which would be death which correct is a lot of rest <laughs> oh goodness gracious get out of here so, but but there's a there's a problem, and this continues on and on and on. And now, what's really happening is that the consumers hit with higher interest rates and inflation. You know, had a conversation with someone last night and said, "Look, you know, I'm still seeing people spending like crazy," mm-hmm. and, and and I think that's right to some ex- extent. But I also talked to a lot of people out there who are cutting back. Said, "Look, we didn't travel, we didn't take the trip. Um, do you see the get the prices of gas? Do you see what's going on in the economy?" They're cutting back, but then we look at it at year end and say, what did the budget look like? And it was the same because everything's that much more expensive. And to your point, Lance, you've been talking about, hey, we're still spending the same amount of money. We're just not buying as much, which, you know, we'll see over time, yeah. you know, what you're looking at inventories, right? Right. Well, you know, again, this is uh, this whole idea that you're talking about, you know, has led to the rise of what we these buy now, pay later companies. Yeah. Uh, Affirm, Afterpay, uh, Apple Pay Later. Buy an Apple phone now, pay for it later. <laughs> well, I mean, that's that's um, when they did a thousand dollar iPhones. We were on the show saying, This is nuts. Who's going to do it? But everybody was so accustomed to the iPhone. They're geniuses. They annuitized payments. Yeah. You will have a payment for your phone for the rest of your life because they're going to say, Oh, by the way, look what we did. We got a new fancy upgrade. You need the new one. And everybody goes out and says, Yeah, you're right. I do. Yeah. So, they get the new one. Guess what? You still have the payment. Exactly. And and, and what what's interesting is these buy now pay later plans. You know, in particular, they sound really. They really, like as you said, you want to buy some underwear, right? Underwear can be expensive if you depending on if you buy some Jimmy Johns. They're not cheap. Jimmy uh, Johns. <laughs> they're not cheap. And Sandwich the point underwear. Is, what is this? But the 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 the, uh, the important thing is is that you can use these on these buy now Tommy Johns. Thank you. Um, I was going to let you go with it for a uh, while. It's fine. Um, but these buy now pay later plans, they are you pay for it in four payments, right? So that sounds pretty innocuous, right? I can buy it today and pay for it in four plans or in four uh, four payments. Credit approval is easy. It's a soft credit pool. Based mostly on if you have some money in your account and and kind of past payment history that you've got out there, and they'll kind of front you the money to make these purchases on the expectation that you're going to pay them back. Here's the problem with it. Here's the interest rates that are charged for these. A firm charges up to 36% interest rates on an APR basis. Afterpay is up to 35.99%. I thought there used to be a thing called usury fees. Um... (laughs) Klarna 29.9% is the top end of its ranges oh man listen you can get Tommy John which are on sale by the way for three 108 bucks with afterpay for four interest free payments of $27 a month for $108 pair set of underwear and that's on sale 
But what is it? What is the rate? Oh, they don't tell you what the rate is if you don't pay it in that time frame. That's why I just don't wear underwear. It's too expensive anymore. <laughs> going commando is going to become a new thing for the poor people. <laughs> uh, it's going to be a, a necessity, unfortunately. Uh, anyway, you just see that the point is, is that, you know, these things that sound too good to be true generally are. Um, unfortunately, what most people fall into that trap of is, oh, this sounds great. I can do this now and I can buy some. And again, most people aren't buying underwear, to, to Danny's point. They are buying necessities, but in most cases, they're buying some item that they want now. They can't afford to have it now. Oh, I want a new Xbox or I want a new television or whatever it is, and I can pay for it in four payments over time and don't realize how much interest they're racking up on those payments. And again, the, the problem is, is that once you get behind, you can't catch up. And that is where the a vast majority, 80% of Americans are so indebted. We've talked about, you know, the, there's just, and there's just survey after survey of this, right? Can't come up with $500 for an emergency, $1,000 for an emergency, whatever it is. And these things do happen and they have to go further into debt to cover that emergency. And so once you're behind that curve, and this is one thing I've, I've you know, the, a lot of people will come and they'll say, oh, yeah, but I put everything on my credit card because I get my points. And if you've got a lot of free discretionary cash flow, and, and we have a lot of clients that are like this, and, and they, they do a very good job of this, right? They put stuff on their credit card, they get the points, they get the, the travel, they get cash back, whatever it is, but they have enough discretionary cash flow paying that bill off every month is not a problem. Well, they're just living but within their for, means. But for most Americans, they go, oh, I'm going to do this so I can get all the points and get the free cash back, and then they miss a payment, and now they're in the trap. And that that just compounds the problem after that. Anyway, quick break. We'll be back. It does have an impact on future profitability, which is what Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger were talking about. Be right back after the break. Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com the real investment show So uh, welcome back to the show this morning. So, um, as I was talking about earlier in the show today, the NFIB report was out yesterday. And the state of small businesses is not great. And their attitude is not good. They are not enthused about economic growth, where we're headed to. And remember, small businesses make up a very large percentage of our hiring you know, all these employment reports that we talk about. This is, you know, if you take a look at the breakdown of companies that hire and you go, well, you know, Apple, Google, those there's about 10,000 companies out there that are just big, massive companies. And a lot of them aren't, aren't public. But, you know, the Apples of the world, the Googles, they're, they're up there. There's 10,000. That's a very small percentage of the overall number of businesses in the economy, um, which 
make up about 6 million active businesses that actually have employees. When you take a look at the number of business formations, there's a much larger number of that, but most of those are trusts or holding companies or management companies that have no employees, whatever they are. Uh, they're more financial structures um, in terms of estate planning and those type of things. So there's, a, there's a, a lot. When you take a look at the number of small businesses that are formed, and this is one of the fallacies of the employment report, you know, they, they have this uh, measure that's in there called the birth-death adjustment, and it's a complete guess. But what they assume is is that when everybody forms a business, that there's at least one employee with those businesses. But a lot of businesses that are formed have no intention of having employees. So they, the, the birth-death adjustment looks at the number of businesses that are formed versus the expectation of how many will die and go out of business. And then they add that number to the payroll. And it's always positive, right? There's always a positive adjustment added to the payroll numbers by this birth-death adjustment. It's never negative. Even though in reality, since 2009, we've actually had fewer businesses being created in, in the country. Okay, different, different argument for a different day. But the point about this is, is that the NFIB report is a very good leading indicator about the economy. They're, they are very, very unenthused <laughs> about the economy right now, uh, to say the least. And I thought this was interesting, Danny, because even Stanley Drunkenmiller uh, was at the Sone conference, and he was talking, and again, talking about the debt ceiling, the impact on that. He said the debt ceiling debate's really very depressing. But importantly, he said that, you know, there's expectations of a recession in the economy this year, which is what the NFIB data is also telling us, right? So what Stanley Drunkenmiller is saying, and he says, he says, look, I'm not predicting, you know, a 2008 type financial crisis, but we're going to have a recession at some point. And it certainly seems logical, given the data that we've seen, lots of indicators about that in terms of the, you know, inverted yield curves, et cetera. But yet the economy remains afloat. Right, we did a 1.1% growth rate in quarter one. Expectations for quarter two are 2.7. Um, so everybody's kind of waiting for this shoe to drop in terms of an economic recession. This is one reason why the market's really kind of been stuck here. You know, despite the fact we're up about eight percent for the year, we're kind of basically where we were in April of last year. Right, we haven't really gone anywhere in over a year. Um, and again, part of this is due to the fact that. While earnings came in better than expected, for instance, Apple reported much better than expected earnings, yet revenues were decli had declined on a year-over-year -year basis. They made less money. They had less revenues coming in, and it had not been for massive share buybacks, you know, they probably would have missed estimates. So this is, this is one of the, the things that we're going to have to kind of factor in. But this is one of the risks to the markets over the course of the next several months. And, and as we talked about this morning uh, at, the, at the outset, while the markets are holding in here right now, it's, all, it's a very tenuous thing. It's like everybody's just kind of waiting for what the next shoe to drop is, uh, is going to be. And this is why we kind of drift from one report to the next. CPI, employment, Fed meeting, CPI, employment, Fed meeting. And, and it's just this what's going to happen next type attitude. And that makes it a little bit difficult to manage money right now, to make, to make big bets on the markets because there's really no clear indication which direction the market is going to head to next. And, and you can make an even case between a bullish move higher and a bearish move lower. 
So that and that's that's the real challenge. Yeah, I was talking to someone last night. Said it feels like this is the uh, calm before the storm. Potentially, said well, we're probably in the eye of the storm. I mean, we haven't had great economic data. We've had fourteen rate hikes over the well, the shoot, not that many. We've had how many rate hikes, Lance? We've had quite a few over the last fourteen months. Right. Um, one of the fastest rate hiking campaigns that we've seen from the Fed because they were way behind the curve here. And you know, like you mentioned, Stanley Drunkenmiller says, "Hey, we have some potential headwinds out here." And Curious to see if they're going to come out with more monetary stimulus to um, try to help the economy here at some point, or do they have what he calls more of a creative, you know, hard landing in the sense of what actually occurs? Because let's be honest, a lot of this stimulus and response, fiscal and monetary, has been a big driver of inflation. Um, so do they go and combat it with more inflationary push? All right. I don't know that they can, and that's something that they've historically done. Right. So, so does this look different? Now, I think there's a lot of opportunities out there. I mean, we're seeing that with what the potential debt ceiling is doing. Watch interest rates. There's, there's opportunity right there. There's going to be opportunity within investments. I mean, look amongst financials right now. Um, a lot of companies, baby gets thrown out with the bathwater, that are solvent, that are good. But have we hit the bottom of that yet? I mean, that's right. that's to be seen. Well, and then and again, you know, one of the other big concerns is commercial real estate. Um, you yep. know, this whole work from home thing has really changed the dynamics. Just uh, so we're located in Houston, um, kind of in what we call the energy corridor. So we're basically surround. We're in a high rise. Uh, we're on the eighth floor of a of a high rise building. Um, surrounding us is basically a lot of energy companies and other high rises, but it's interesting right across the street. So right in front of our building is, is I-10, which is one of the major freeways in Houston. And right across the street are several other high rise buildings. Now they're class, and this is the interesting point, they're class B buildings. So there's class A, class B, et cetera. Um, they're class B buildings. Two of them are only about 50% occupied. One of them is in receivership already. Um, so one of the, and this is kind of one of those other shoes that everybody's kind of waiting for to drop is this commercial real estate issue. Because there's, because there's two outcomes of this work from home thing, right? So first of all, um, you know, companies have leased floors of an office building when we were, you know, prior to 2020, and they have a five-year lease or a 10-year lease, whatever they, they signed that lease for. So during the pandemic, so they had several floors of a building um, that they were hire, hire, housing their employees on pandemic hits we all make adjustments to work from home well they're still paying for that lease for three four five floors of a building whatever it is but they're only using maybe one floor of the building now so what happens to that building and this is the big concern as those leases come due the the tenant says i don't need five floors anymore i've paid through my lease i don't owe you any more money i only need one floor so i'm willing to negotiate to, to rent one floor now well, that leaves these office buildings potentially at risk of having a lot of vacant space and no demand to fill it because of this shift in attitudes. Um, my son just got a job with a company uh, that works worldwide, and their their operations are they, they're in the office three days a week. They're off two days a week to work from home. But the, the days that they're off, you get to choose. So I can choose Tuesday, Thursday. I have, to, I have to pick my days and stay with it. But I can pick Tuesday, Thursday, Monday, Wednesday, Monday, Friday, whatever I want. And those are my days off to work from home. But they share hot desk, right? This was their solution. So there's, there's hot desk. And the days that I'm there, I go sit at a desk that somebody else was sitting at yesterday. And I plug in my laptop and I, I go to work. And we're going to see a lot more of that 
as this trend continues or until companies go, this is not working for us. We're not getting the, the same productivity, et cetera. And I think that's coming. You know, one thing that you lose from the work, kind of the work from home analysis. And look, a lot of people don't like to drive in traffic. I get it. There's lots of benefits of working from home, et cetera. There's also some drags economically. Uh, first of all, when you don't have that in-person communication, right? There's a lot of idea generation that occurs when you're just having a conversation with somebody. And when you disconnect, you lose that productivity and that idea generation that can move a business forward. The other side of it is, is that uh, like in downtown areas of cities, those the other businesses that support those buildings are also in trouble, right? So think about all the little restaurants and bodegas and cafes, et cetera, that surround high-rise buildings so people can go get lunch really quick, get back to their office, et cetera. They're going out of business. They're actually moving out to the suburbs where people are working from home so that when people are working from home, they can still have their lunches out and go, go have lunch out and come back to work. So it's changing the landscape. You know, uh, you know, we could see downtown, and I'm not saying this is the case, but I mean, you could literally see potentially downtown centers dying and suburbs expanding because of the move out from, from those areas. So again, this is going to have impacts economically down the road that are going to impact financial markets and investing. And so, you know, the, the, you know, there's still a lot of risk in the commercial real estate space potentially um, on the downside as that situation continues to mature. Well, I think it's been there for years. I mean, we driving into the office, you know, we drive in pretty early in the morning and like driving past like all these buildings that were just empty. Yeah. And you see the lights on, nobody there, not a desk, not anything. Yeah, it's, and right they're building you a new see, one. You can see right through them. Yeah, building a new one right next door. Yeah. And so this is becoming an issue, especially as they're having to start to refinance. Yep. That's going to be a bigger problem. And that's going to be, and that's another problem with tight lending standards. Yep. Not what, not, banks not wanting to fund those deals. So that's right. All right. That wraps up the show for today. Danny, thanks so much. Be back here, of course, tomorrow with Michael Leibowitz. We'll talk about what the inflation data says today and what that means for the markets and money. And then, of course, on Friday, Danny Ratliff, Richard Rosso. And also, don't forget, May the 11th, we have Transitioning to Medicare. So make sure you subscribe to our website and get registered for that upcoming uh, Lunch and Learn, uh, May the 11th. That's tomorrow, actually. Tomorrow. tomorrow. So make sure you're subscribed to it today. There you go, at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you tomorrow.